Bitcoin is fuck you money, right? It's fuck you to every policy, every police state, and every politician in the world. And it's like, that's the power of it. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? It's pretty early on here in the morning. I can literally hear birds tweeting outside. Can you hear it? Also, Bitcoin back on a rip, nearly set another all-time high yesterday. What a wild year we are having. Hope you're all soaking this up and loving this. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got the first part in what is definitely going to be an epic series. I've got the man of the moment, Mr. Robert Breedlove, and we're doing part one of our mini-series looking at Bitcoin and the sovereign individual with the first part today, considering Bitcoin as the ultimate offshore bank. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. So firstly, we're going to kick off today with my newest sponsor, which is Ledger. Now, as I've told you a few times now, Ledger was the first hardware wallet I ever used, and I've used most of them now. But four years ago, actually, it was more than four years ago, it was about four years and three months ago that I needed my first hardware wallet, and I bought myself a Nano S. And I'm still using that same device today. It still works perfectly. Now, the other very cool thing about the Nano S is that if you have an Android phone, you can connect it to your Nano to safely manage your Bitcoin on the go. Now, I'm a big fan of the product, mostly because of its ease of use and not just the device being robust, but their Ledger Live software, which connects it to your device, makes it really simple to manage your Bitcoin. Now, if you want to check this out, please do head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin, and the only place that I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin. Now, Kraken is consistently rated the best and most secure crypto exchange, and I'm always telling you how important security is. But they also have the best in class in customer service. So if you've got an issue, whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever that shit is, if you reach out to them, they're going to get that fixed for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have all the tools you could possibly need. So whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile app so you can trade Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin and you can find out more at Kraken.com or you can download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. And next up, we have BlockFi. Just had a massive announcement, a massive new round of funding, a $3 billion valuation. So firstly, just a big congratulations to Zach and Flory. It's been great going along the ride with you. They're my oldest ever sponsor. Now, they also had a big announcement recently. BlockFi is launching a Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card imminently, something I'm very excited about because you will be able to stack sats on all your card purchases and they will be offering a market-leading 1.5 rewards rate in Bitcoin. And now the waitlist is open to the public. Anyone, regardless of whether they have a BlockFi account or not, is eligible to join. If you want to find out more, then you want to head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, so today's show, this is one that has been in works for a long time. Firstly, because I've been working my way through the sovereign individual, but also because Mr. Robert Breedlove himself has been doing a lot of preparation for this. 
Now, I know a lot of you know this book. Some of you don't. Some of you still won't have bought this book. You know, it's, it's quite hard to get hold of these days, the physical copy. I've got one that I bought, God, I must have bought it about two years ago, and it sat there, and I looked at it, and I never read it. But I've started making my way through the audio version when I go for my little walks in the morning. Now, The Sovereign Individual has become a massive favourite for Bitcoiners. It comes up in so many conversations and it is mind-blowingly relevant for a book which was written about the future in 1997. It was written pretty much before any real-world adoption of the internet, before social media, and a long time before Bitcoin. Yet somehow, so many of its predictions have come true. The book outlines William Rees-Mogg and James Dale Davison's vision of the future and how the rise of digital technology would make the world a much more competitive, unequal an unstable place, and they even predicted a cyber money that would power the individual to splinter from the nation states. No one in Bitcoin knows this book than my man, Mr. Robert Breedlove. So we are setting out a multi-part series and getting deep into it. And I know you're going to enjoy these. I know you're going to absolutely love this one today. If you do have any feedback on this show or you want to reach out to me, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do eventually reply to everyone. I'm getting a lot of emails right now. So if you do write to me, please do be patient. I'm getting 30 to 40 emails a day. Also, my other show, Defiance, we've got a new series which has dropped I think some of you are going to be thinking, Pete, why are you covering Britney Spears? But this isn't really just a story about Britney Spears. This is a story about conservatorships. Very unusual thing. So if you want to find out more about that, please head over to defiance.news. Parts one to three have dropped. Part four has been delayed a couple of days because we got a nice, nasty legal letter from somebody. So we're just processing that. But part four will be out on Monday. So check that out at defiance.news. And if you haven't checked out my daily email at neveredit.com, please do go and subscribe. That's your daily dose of Bitcoin tech and macroeconomics. Okay, you're going to love this. I'm going to let you get over to Mr. Breedlove. Enjoy it. I'll see you all soon. Love you all. Have a great weekend. Breedlove, my man, how are you? Are you ready? I'm good, Peter. I'm ready. Thanks for having me. Man, always good to have you. You are the man of the moment. Love talking to you. Okay, listen, before we get into this, and I think this will be, as we talked about before, I think this will be multi-part. Got a few things I want to ask you about before we get into it. I think a really important starting point is defining what violence is in the term of this conversation. Because when we think of violence traditionally, for example, today I was, I was explaining the concept to my son when, of the sovereign individual. He thinks of violence as somebody attacking, physically attacking somebody. But mm. in terms of the book, violence is more than just physical attacks on people, which result in injury. So for the sake of this conversation, can we just define what violence refers to or the scope of violence? Yeah, in the scope of the sovereign individual, I would say you could sum it up in that it's viewing violence, which you could also say violence or coercion. It could just be the threat of violence or force, you know, um, influencing human action in the shadow of violence, you could say, is, is coercion. Um, you, you know, you pay your taxes so you don't go to jail kind of thing. And this has been, as the book lays out a dominant resource strategy historically. Um, so it started and the proper way to think about government in this long arc of history is that once we settled down in the agricultural age and we started to accumulate surplus, economic surplus, right? We're producing grain, uh, 
uh, you know, cattle, whatever the output of the farm is, we needed to protect that from plunderers, from outsiders coming in to steal uh, whatever the surplus was. And government emerged on the free market essentially as a protection service for that economic surplus. So you could say that you needed violence to protect from violence, to insulate the productive economy from violence itself. And that's, that's really the, the, the framing of it in the, throughout the rest of this book. And then it, it explores how that protection service, that monopoly on violence, uh, tends to become oppressive over time. You know, they start to abuse the privilege. Like, like most monopolies do, they abuse their monopolistic uh, privileges on society over time. And how this, how the, the actual the logic of violence, which is largely driven by technology, the cost of attack versus the cost of defense, how this shapes the lines across which human beings organize themselves throughout history. Um, and I, just, yeah, I found it to be a very interesting way to look at things. They explore, the authors had written prior books on the gunpowder revolution uh, and a couple of other things that, that actually zeroed in on some of this. Um, I, I guess one simple example would be the knight on horseback in the feudal age, you know, a fully armored knight could essentially wield force over a large group of peasants. You know, he could, he could go out and violently um, win in a, in a bout with, with, you know, say 40 peasants or so. But once the invention of the rifle occurred in the gunpowder revolution, all of a sudden, the, the symmetry of violence reverted back to favor the peasants, where they could defend from a night at you know hundreds of hundred yards away. So these little technological shifts dramatically influence how society organizes itself. Uh, the last point there: the knight himself, by the way, an even more simplistic innovation made him possible, is you needed the stirrup actually, so he could mount the horse. Otherwise, the knight was on foot, and he couldn't really move force across space easily. So something as simple as the stirrup enabled the knight to become the dominant uh, military force in the feudal age. So what we're really discussing in this book is, is not the eradication of violence. It's that violence exists between humans, and the logic changes with different technical innovations, and the logic has changed through to the agricultural revolution through the industrial revolution and we expect to change through this information revolution but it's all that changes is the logic in line with techno technological advances that's right the i would say the logic of the incentives to violence as well mm. uh, the big change in the digital age which i'm sure we'll get into is that encryption technology allows us to secure property in a way that's you know when done properly immune the violent or unilateral confiscation or coercion. So, you know, the clear case here is Bitcoin. If you properly custody your Bitcoin, uh, you know, in a redundant multi-signature geographically dispersed scheme, there's not, we always talk about the $5 wrench attack. That's what this is all about. It's, you can now put money in a place uh, that I actually analogize later on, and the authors do as well, to the ultimate offshore bank. It's a place behind this impenetrable wall that cannot be compromised. 
essentially. So this radically changes the nature of the nation state, which is premised on unilateral value flows. They have, you know, they send you a tax bill that you do not negotiate. You don't negotiate the rate. You don't negotiate the services that you receive. And you also have no say so at all in state inflation revenue, where they're just printing money to paper over, uh, you know, either prior losses or to, to satisfy future expenditure at will. And citizens have no say so in that. Um, so the big, big change here is that citizens, the punchline, I guess, is that citizens end up being treated more like customers of governments in the future than they than they are employees. So we could say employees, as employees of an organization, we just kind of have this democratic voice governance mechanism. We can voice our opinion through our vote or what have you. The majority wins. So there's a tyranny of the majority. And then also your our, our the will and intention of the majority sort of gets obfuscated in the electoral process. Whereas in a when you're a customer-based um, citizen, you have exit, you have the optionality of exit. So you don't like how the government's treating you, well then your Bitcoin goes everywhere at the speed of light, and there's not there's no capital controls, there's no confiscation, there's nothing any state can uh, do to, to prevent that. So therefore, they have to negotiate with you more fairly. They have to treat you better. They have to treat you like a customer um, whose loyalty they are trying to earn, like every other free market enterprise in the world. And just remind me for a second, because I haven't noted this down. When was this book written? This book was written in 1997. 1997. Okay, so what we're trying to do here for the people who are listening is that if they haven't read The Sovereign Individual, hopefully they will purchase a copy and read it. It's it's in a high demand right now. Um, But we're trying to extrapolate some of the ideas from that in a world where we now have Bitcoin and know that Bitcoin exists. So this is what we're going to try and do with this interview. Uh, interviews, maybe multiple interviews, is talk through the book, talk through the learnings, but kind of relate this to Bitcoin. One thing the book does really well and in an interesting way is that when it discusses the industrial age and the agricultural revolution in a historical context and explains exactly what happens, uh, but then when it moves on to talk about the information age, in a very similar tone, it explains what will happen, but that is a prediction. So just an easy first question for you before we start getting into the details. This book is a theory, but is for you, is it an inevitability or is it something that is possible that you're preparing for? I certainly don't believe in the concept of inevitability. You know, there's a certainly a feedback loop. And I put Bitcoin in that camp too, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the threat of a black swan, which is by definition an unknowable unknown, always exists. Right? We live in, an, in a universe pervaded by chaos and entropy. Anything can happen. We, we don't know, you know. So I don't think the book is laying out an inevitability, but they are tracing the historical changes in social organization based on this seemingly simple dynamic between kind of, again, as we said, the cost of attack versus the cost of defense. And I found that the same as when you're looking into the future, it's very difficult to predict the future, but you can get a directional idea 
looking at economics, right? So we could have, not to say this would have been easy, but like even looking at something like Amazon and say the late nineties, early two thousands, like they, that business model was premised on decreasing the cost of distribution and doing it in a more timely manner. So a manner more in sync, more harmonized to, to the customer demand. Those types of business models tend to win out. So when you can decrease the cost of distribution, that is related to expansion of the network, the proliferation of the network. And in this case, the book's looking at the information age, which, which I call the digital age, whatever we're going to name it here. Um, when you collapse the cost of information, you've thrown a, like the very purpose of the firm, by the way, these, the, what we are accustomed to organizing ourselves within the corporation and the large nation state is to make transaction and information costs to be able to amortize those uh, into the, the size of the firm. So to decrease the cost of information by, by having um, trusted, more trusted in interaction within the firm. But the, the authors make the point that when you decrease this cost significantly, that the actual purpose of the firm gets called into question. So people are more likely to self-organize themselves um, in new and, and unique forms. And in a world where, you know, in the industrial age where decree mattered so much, where the actual law of the land was important because everything was done physically, right? So that you could leverage your physical presence over capital. So another example they go into is how unions would, if they didn't like the wages they were being paid, they would just strike, right? They could strike in place. They could occupy the factory. They could stop production because the production occurred in a physical location that gave them a violent or coercive leverage over that immovable capital. Um, but the digital age, where we have much more products and services that are of an informational content, less less uh, physical capital is involved in many of the business models in the digital age, that option does not exist. The, there's a natural defender's advantage or defensive advantage um, that, that gives people a, a lot of option to, to move elsewhere to where they're treated best. So it, it's almost as if coercion seeds to civilization in the digital age, because it just doesn't work as well anymore. Now, clearly, this is not a blanket generalization to all industries. There's certain things that are still going to be factory-based, probably still unionized for many years to come. But it is to say that the flow of economic energy is away from physical industrial-based industry to digital non-local non industry. And that as that energy and productivity flows into digital space, coercion does not work there because everyone had, you know, customer business owners and customers have optionality uh, to the extent that they've never had before. Do you see with regards to that industrial age example you gave, do you see the coercion working both ways in that um, obviously you discussed unions working together to coerce the, what they want, but there is a reality also that those people within the production line 
have no ability to differentiate themselves because uh, every job is kind of graded on a specific uh, uh, part of the production line and that person can be replaced with another person. So people don't have a chance to be more productive. They don't have a chance to differentiate themselves. So you tend to get those kind of pay grades. Um, Do you see the fact that actually it's like a bi-directional coercive relationship at times? Because also some of these people are perhaps under threat that it's very difficult for them to move off and perhaps do another job, move into another industry, perhaps wherever they're, you know, let's talk about what happened in the motor trade up in Detroit, right? It's very difficult with those people who are so conditioned to that single job within that single uh, uh, employer that also that they could be essentially uh, have kind of abusive treatment from the, the plant owner. So can it be bi-directional coercion? Yeah, so it's a constant negotiation, right? It's every employment is at will. So if you as an employee, you do not like the wage you are receiving, then it is incumbent upon you to go out and develop your skill set for alternative employment. Now, as far as it being, it would only be coercive to the extent that an employer could prevent an employee from seeking another job. Um, which, by the way, we should probably back up a little here. There's a Mises makes this point in human action that we have this framework today where we think, you know, jobs are are sacred. It's almost like a human right. We need to opt. The government needs to make jobs happen, and all of this. The only way <laughs> to have uh, minimized unemployment is to remove interventionism from the economy. So. Every time, for instance, when we increase the minimum wage, we have increased the price of labor. So we are now, uh, there are people that would be willing to work for a lower price, but because there is a government mandated price on labor, they are unable to get employment. So minimum wage creates unemployment, the very phenomenon it is intended to resolve. And this is true. And Mises goes into depth on this, but every government action, by the way, and this is a big one to swallow, but when a government has to push something by decree, they are necessarily taking factors, productive factors, out of the free market. So you can think of the free market, whatever is happening in the free market, a truly unhampered free market, would be the voice of the people. Consumers are sovereign. Consumers are buying and selling. Whatever they, wherever there are profits to be made, that's indicative of consumer, that's unsatisfied consumer demand. So entrepreneurs would go there and satisfy that want. As soon as a government says, I'm going to tax you here to do something that the market's not doing, they've now restricted the sovereignty of consumers to go and reallocate that capital towards satisfying a political, an arbitrary political government established aim at the cost of market participants having their own wants satisfied. So this, we have unemployment. Unemployment is an issue in the world, as Mises calls this, institutional unemployment. So it exists and is a problem because of government intervention. So our, our misconception here is that we think we need more legislation or more minimum wage or whatever law to fix unemployment, when in fact, the opposite is true from a first principle standpoint, is like you need to withdraw human intervention from the marketplace. 
That's how you achieve full employment. So in that instance where we would say there's this bilateral coercive relationship between employee and employer, that's more likely to only be the case when there's intervention, when there's government intervention. Because in a free market, that employee is going to have the widest range of options to go and sell their labor to someone else if they're not being treated well. Um, so it's all about, I guess, creating these opportunities to vote with your feet. You know, we're talking about, Mm -hmm. uh, citizens having the ability to vote with their feet by taking Bitcoin to leave to another jurisdiction, employees being able to vote with their feet by leaving an employer to go to an alternative. This, the option to exit keeps everyone honest is kind of the gist of it. And, um, yeah, I think that this relationship in that in that case is least coercive but you know to your point that the it can go both ways it can absolutely go both ways there's there's a natural i guess human predilection to want to get something for nothing right i think the something for nothing is what's at the heart of all this is what the heart it's at the heart of central banking frankly we we want to produce money and create economic activity by just printing dollars um, central bank shareholders want shares in the central bank so they can profit from that money production from doing nothing. They just get seniorage on, on this money production. Union workers want to get paid more, even though the market's not bearing that out. So they'll physically commandeer a plant and demand more. And so uh, there's just this human, I guess, yeah, predilection to want us to um, try to steal or confiscate or get some, get more uh, gain more value than they've created, let's say. And that's where the importance of historically was this, the state's purpose was to prevent that, to prevent fraud, to prevent the use of coercion and violence such that an economic network could flourish. And, but clearly the state has now become that abuser. So now we're moving into this world where Bitcoin actually gives us a fair game. It's a game where that those strategies are neutralized effectively so that the dominant strategy becomes long-term cooperation. That's how you're going to create the most value. And the, the authors go into that. They say that you know trust and reputation are likely to make a major comeback because uh, you know of the irreversibility of some of this. If you can steal a bunch of Bitcoin, no one you can't undo that. You can't go into the courts and fix that. So it's they think that. The world will move towards something more like we saw, I think it was in the, I forget what age they referenced, but um, where it was based much more on, first of all, your ability to be productive and then your reputation for being productive. And you would come to trust that instead of, um, you know, reliance on coercion to fix any, any problems mm. in a, in economic relationships. So in terms of how we're going to structure this, there's quite a lot in the book, this historical context we're going to cover. Um, but we should do the setup for people as well. As I said, you should, you should buy the book. People should buy the book if they can get hold of it. If they can't, they can. By the way, it's on, um, it's on LOP's website, I believe. Okay. There's a free, free PDF. Uh, and it, is, it has been sold out on Amazon. It's back ordered right now. Right, okay. Well, I've seen it quite from some quite expensive listings for it as well. Um, I've managed to get me a copy, um, but I've been doing the audiobook version as walking. But 
what we're really talking about here is we're going to be getting into what what the authors talk about as how the logical violence will change during the this information age that we're in and to reference to the the virtual community and what microprocessors have brought to the table um do you want to talk about that and how how this is actually changing the logic of violence but more of the setup because and once we've done that we we will move on to talking about uh bitcoin as the kind of ultimate offshore bank yeah so i think it can help a quote Frame this up for me really nicely, and I think it was mentioned in the book. But it's that quote: "Technology is advancing much faster than our ability to understand its implications." Unquote. And I think that's what this is all about. And it's another version of Andreessen Horowitz' infamous quote that software is eating the world. Um. To me, that that phrase rings louder every year. You know, it's what mm-hmm. we originally thought, oh, who needs a website? These things are just some weird, new, fancy thing. You know, 10 years later, everyone needs a website. It's a must. Then comes the mobile wave. When we have everyone needs an app or you need to be engaged with these, these uh, mobile apps. And so it's changed business. You can't really be in any industry now and not be at least tangentially in the technology business. You're running your business on this on digital software. That's true for everyone in the world. Otherwise you're being outcompeted. But I think it's also eating our institutional models. It's eating the way we have organized ourselves for hundreds of years. So it is one of these, the authors go into these, uh, which is kind of a fourth turning thing, I, I guess that every 500 years we have these major shifts um, and we are living through one, which is really interesting. And, and frankly, we're one year in to the inflection point, I think, which was COVID. Mm-hmm. Right? COVID was a massive accelerant on this transition from industrial to digital age. We already had a lot of the groundwork late, but people weren't working remote as much. People weren't forced to shelter in place. And by forcing people to shelter in place, it seems like people started to study a lot more about what's going on. Right? I, I don't know which I assume, you know, your educational content and uh, a lot of the Bitcoin community, I think, has contributed to that, along with Bitcoin number go up, which really amplifies the whole message, coupled with distrust in government rising as the state response to COVID was just, uh, you know, abysmal. So it's this, it's this snowballing effect that seems to have gone really parabolic in the past 12 months. And I guess the, the theme here is that Digital tools, they're antiquating the nation-state model. Mm -hmm. The the nation-state model is based on forcible human organization. So as the authors say, they treated taxpayers like cattle. That They just could corral them and pretty much take whatever they needed from them, right? Cut them down whenever it was necessary. But digital technology empowers individuals, as we've touched on a little bit, in a radical in novel ways that that change the balance of power between nation state and citizen. And this all sounds maybe hyperbolic, especially if you're just, you know, we're born into this world. There are, there's capital and institutions around us that things are flowing. We kind of take it for granted, right? Mm-hmm. We just, 
it just is the way of life. We think through our own little limited view of reality, we think this is just the way things are. Therefore, it's, it's, the, way it's, it's the way it always has been. Therefore, it's the way it always will be. But when you start to study history, you see that this is not the way it has always been. Not, not, not even close. Um, and the way I like to think about this is that man, like we're constantly optimizing for more energy efficient modes of action, basically. So the, the overarching purpose of man is to channel energy across space and time to satisfy his wants. And we want to do that. We want to use less energy to satisfy more wants, right? That is productivity in a nutshell. And in that way, we innovate tools, right? We can, the classic example, we can go out and dig more holes for a man hour with a shovel than we can on bare hands. And we also innovate models of society, models of socioeconomic organization. And that, that I think, is the proper framing. Is we st- if you start to look at human organization itself as a social device, as a tool for allocating energy, then you can start to compare which ones are more or less efficient. And if we look at something like the 20th century, where we had this ideological and economic contention between Soviet Russia and capitalistic, in quotation marks, United States, because it was essentially a free market and everything except money, um, we saw that play out. The, the resource strategy implemented by the United States outcompeted USSR because they were leveraging more free market intelligence, if you will. So they had the intelligence of every economic actor behaving in their own self-interest, guided by the profit motive and the price signal um, to generate more wealth. Whereas the USSR depended on this false sense of, they tried to replace the profit motive with a devotion to nationalistic faith. And they tried to, instead of the price signal, they wanted to command and control all economic decisions. And so you had centralized computing, essentially the USSR, competing with decentralized computing in the United States free market. And the the decentralized mode of human organization always outcompetes the centralized mode. Not only is it more intelligent, it can more intelligent, it can bring more force to bear, but it also is composed like an open source network, if you will, is composed more so of voluntarily adopted rules. And this is very important. In a you know fundamentally capitalistic society, the rules are basically just preservation of life, liberty, property. Now, clearly we're not a pure capitalist society, but I would say United States was much closer to that ideal than Soviet Russia. Whereas a a tyrannical society has to impose all of the rules. There are enforcement and security costs uh, necessary to impose that rule set. So for that reason, again, we talk about decreasing the cost of distribution leads to an increasing proliferation of the network. If we decrease the cost of distribution of information and energy in a free market, then it's going to proliferate more as a network. It's going to create more wealth and it's going to outcompete something like uh, a centrally planned model in Soviet Russia. So this is the thing. It's like, so capitalism as a tool is better than communism. But capitalism, now this is where it gets a little tricky because the language has been abused. We don't have capitalism in the world, right? 
central banking is anti-capitalistic. It is, it is a monopoly. Monopolies, legal monopolies do not exist in pure capitalism. That's why I created this new term for a Bitcoin-based mode of socioeconomic organization where no one can monopolize Bitcoin, finally. So the, the theory here, I guess, is that as more capital moves into Bitcoin, that we it changes the shape of socioeconomic organization towards a more purified form of capitalism, which I've called sovereignism here uh, in, mm-hmm. in homage to the series. And that mode will outcompete state capitalism as a resource strategy. It will attract the best and brightest citizens into it because it's a, it's a fair rule set. It's a place where people can protect the fruits of their own labor and can maximize their optionality and wealth creation over time. So that's the mega political transition here. It's like for the same, in the same way and for the same reasons, capitalism outcompetes communism, sovereignism outcompetes capitalism. And we're starting to see the early stages of this happening. Um, A number of things you said have reminded me of a conversation I had recently with Balaji, but also something he put out. He tweeted recently. It's a really interesting point that made me think about it for a while. But he said we need to stop thinking in terms of the developed world and the developing world. I'm not sure if you saw this, but he said we need to think of the ascending and the descending world. And it's a really good point because in reference to the United States, it's definitely part of the developed world. But I see a solid argument for why it's part of the, part of the descending world. Uh, we've seen the infrastructure breakdowns in Texas recently. We've seen the massive queues during the COVID crisis for food. Uh, we've seen ridiculous uh, stimulus package upon stimulus package, which is you know pushing us towards. I say we're pushing America towards a more socialist state it it isn't obviously a pure socialist state but there's certainly aspects of interventionalism where there's like this redistribution of income which we always know is in always know is inefficient uh the 1.9 trillion doesn't work out of the 1400 stimulus checks each it's something like i think pierre rochard talked about about, that would have been five and a half thousand each but it's money for schools and things whatever Uh, and what we're seeing is this migration of people in the US, we're seeing two forms of migration. We're seeing the the state regulatory arbitrage where people are moving from California to, uh, let's say, to Wyoming or to Miami or Texas. to uh, Texas. We're seeing that. But we're also seeing people actually exit the country. And with Bitcoin, we're seeing the rise of these digital nomads. I'm, I'm, I know of at least four that I'm regularly talking to. And to be honest, uh, Robert, if my circumstances were different, I would be a digital nomad right now because I've spent a year in lockdown. I've got a state which is becoming very oppressive. I've, you know, I live in the, one of the most, well, London's one of the most surveilled cities in the world. We've got uh, really, really crappy free speech laws here. We've got uh, massive government debt and you know, a lot of talk of raising in taxes, corporation tax about to rise, talks of capital gains taxes. And so my productive output and my uh, investment and putting my money into Bitcoin is under threat of being uh, taken by the state due to their failures. And I'm now looking at what is my optionality. So what you're talking about, we're starting to see 
and we talk about this virtual world. My business is a virtual world. I have eight employees distributed about around the world who I can pay in Bitcoin if I want. You know, let's throw one more into that. I've had all my bank accounts closed down. And that was because I refused to tell them what I was spending all my money on. I said, this is none of your business. If I've got to complain, I'll complain. So all these things you're talking about and all these things that are talked about in the book, I'm like experiencing myself and I'm seeing other Bitcoin people experience it. So rather than be a theory, it kind of is playing out now. Again, no question we're in the digital age. I think anyone that denies that is living under a rock. But now we're one year into what I call the inflection point or the acceleration point. And I now I think we're really starting to see a lot of the, the hypothesis from this book start to really play out. It had already nailed a couple of things. It had predicted the rise of social media. Um, it actually predicted the, the use of a pandemic by governments that when people started to protest, governments would try to reinforce uh, the relevance of borders through a, a response to a pandemic. Um, so that's interesting to think about as well. Uh, and I like the, it was, it was Balaji, you said that the, the ascending descending world. Yeah. This sort of speaks to the broader shift in worldview as well. Whereas in the 20th century, we're much more likely to think in statics, like developed developing world, right? We, we think that you can label something and that's kind of what it is. First world, second world, third world, things like that. Whereas in the digital age, we've become much more aware of just how fluid and dynamic the world is. And at the bottom of that would be, you know, physics tends to kind of permeate upward how we look at the world. And so we're moving away from the Newtonian model to something more like Einsteinian or quantum, where things are constantly fluid, liquid, in flux. Um, and that, that way of describing the world, ascending and descending, is much more dynamic, let's say, than our, our traditional static viewpoints. And it's a great point, too, that you can't assume that because the United States, for instance, has this legacy infrastructure that made it so superior in this particular age, that that set of advantages carries over to the new competitive playing field. So the, the example, in fact, the opposite is true, that something that was once an asset can quickly become a liability. So the, the classic example here, I've been talking to Booth recently about the Booth series, is, is the Blockbuster example. They were dominant in content rental, like video games, movies, et cetera, et cetera, because they had this huge network of stores. And they had a very uh, efficient logistics network for pumping these things out and getting new releases onto the shelves and whatever, whatever. As soon as... Netflix came about um, and became started to capitalize on streaming. So actually streaming this content versus physically distributing it. The very asset that was that, that defined Blockbuster's advantage in the marketplace oh, almost overnight became their biggest liability. So all of a sudden they're saddled with all these stores, this, this large distribution network, logistics infrastructure, all of the employees right, that have been trained and dialed in on this mode of distribution. It's rendered irrelevant almost overnight. So your your greatest asset can flip to be your greatest liability almost instantaneously in the digital age. And another 
you know, possibility of that is something like 3D printing. Like this can, this can occur on a much larger scale as well. Whereas today we have uh, China serving as the production factory, largely for the United States, but also many other places in the world. There's a huge amount of capital invested in that, that logistics infrastructure. If 3D printing becomes mainstream, which it's something, when you look, again, looking at the economics of it, it's not making a prediction. It's just saying, okay, what can a 3D printer do? And it turns out it can produce, today it's being used to produce uh, high-cost, low-volume parts, way better than, some, than the China model, we'll say. So for custom pieces on a boat or something like that, you can render a piece for, say, one-fiftieth the cost that's 10 times as good in quality. But as that becomes more mainstream and people can just download uh, an idea, right, the software blueprint for whatever the thing is they're going to print, print it in their home or print it somewhere nearby, you've now collapsed the cost of distribution again. You've informationalized this product. So all of a sudden, this, this logistics infrastructure that, you know, say the United States has with China, that all becomes a huge liability. And therefore... Ascending world, the developing world, can potentially have a very large advantage in this transition. Um, there, there's the example of Africa, right, where they actually leapfrogged the tele, telecoms, um, telecoms rollout, where they were because they didn't have this legacy infrastructure that we have to upgrade here in the U.S. You know, we had to go from telegraphs to telephones to 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, whatever, uh, Africa was able to adopt the latest and greatest much more quickly. So it gave them a lot more agility um, to move faster than a develop, developed world or descending world competitor. And that's, that's a good way to look at it too, because you're getting these uh, more nimble, more modern territories, right, that, that have adopted the latest and greatest technology without being burdened by the liabilities associated with legacy technology, those become much more attractive. They can, they can move faster. They can create more wealth. There's less cost involved in them. And in a world where state revenues are declining because people have recourse to something like Bitcoin, they can opt out of predatory tax regimes. They can opt out of overly inflationary regimes. They can just put their savings in the offshore bank of Bitcoin State revenues are going to be declining. So the, the states that have the least liabilities, like in the U.S., we have just a black hole of unfunded pension liabilities, uh, Social Security, all of those. It's this tremendous number that will never be paid. So, by the way, if you're in your 30s or 40s or younger and you think you're going to ever draw Social Security, um, I, I would check your check your hope on that. The authors make the point in this world people will start to migrate to the states that are the most technologically agile, that have uh, the lowest liabilities because revenues will be in decline. So states with lower liabilities will be more solvent uh, and therefore less predatory, right? They're going to, they'll be less likely to um, overly inflate or overly tax their citizens. So I think that's a great way to look at it. It's it's instead of thinking of the world in static terms, we need to think in rate of change terms. And because the rate of change now is the big deal. So things can move so quickly 
when you're on an exponential scale that you can go like something we just went through, right? Bitcoin was under $4,000 a year ago and it's 50,000 today. The bull market just started. And it's probably never going under 20,000 again. Yeah, probably not. It might, ne- you know, without a black swan yeah. reason, it might never go under 30,000 again. And there's a chance it shoots up to 100,000 at some point this year. And, you know, and we get a yeah. new base and we have the same. Cycle. Yeah, if we use the last cycle as a because proxy, it never went below three times its prior all time high. So we'd expect it to run up some blow off top if the cycle repeats, and then it would never come down below, say, 60K. So we'll see. But we also have this change in situation with Bitcoin where people of previous cycles have tried to pick a top or try yeah. to sell or try to predict it. But people are now thinking, I have this pristine asset. If I time it wrong, I may end up through a certain trading period with less Bitcoin than I had previously, and that's not going to work for me. So rather than play those cycles, I'm going to hold on to that pristine asset like Sailor talks about, and I'm going to leverage the the cheap, weak sovereign currency for my day-to-day needs. And uh, so that puts you know, additional pressure on uh, Bitcoin because it lowers the available yeah. supply, um, which becomes becomes a, a an accelerator for this kind of Bitcoin world, which itself is super interesting. That's yes, absolutely right. That Bitcoin is the tip of the spear on this whole thing, by the way. And it's as uh, the authors have this quote. They say, "quote When the greatest tax haven of them all is fully open for business, all funds will essentially be offshore funds at the discretion of their owner." Unquote. That's what Bitcoin is. It is the ultimate offshore mm-hmm. bank that with no counterparty risk. Right? You still had counterparty risk in the offshore banking model. That was the preferred means of wealth preservation access. Etc. in the 20th century because they had they had built a business around it, frankly. Like Swiss banks had built a business around being uh, anonymous and secure and high accessibility. Um, they had good terrain, by the way, for protecting, you know, Switzerland had geopolitical neutrality, plus they had good terrain, which makes them kind of hard to invade. So they were this analog offshore bank, if you will, for most of the world. A lot of a lot of this happened when Europe was uh, imposing really heavy taxes in the, the re- Reconstruction period. A lot of people moved their capital into Swiss Switzerland to protect it from that taxation. So now the analogy is great. I go into this in the next part two of the piece that I'll publish. That is that title: Bitcoin, the ultimate offshore bank. We have this mode of capital preservation that offers, you know, orders of magnitude, more privacy, accessibility, uh, inviolability than the, than the Swiss bank. Plus you have no counterparty risk. So that's the, I think that's the useful framing is that people are like, Oh, what is Bitcoin? Why would anyone use it? It's magic internet money. It's like, no, 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 no. Like offshore banking is a $40 trillion market in the world today. Uh, you know, gold's 10 trillion. They're both trying to serve, more or less the same purpose. It's trust-minimized wealth preservation over time. And to that end, to, satis- to the end of satisfying that want, there is no better tool in the world than Bitcoin. 
And so as people awaken to that and they start to move their savings into Bitcoin, that's what drives this collapse in state revenues in both unilateral taxation and inflation. Well, yeah, because if the if if there is a collapse in revenue from taxation, um, and the tax and the tax uh, receipts can't cover the outgoing government cost, then as you know, they have to increase spending, as we've seen with these stimulus packages. I mean, the UK now has got, I think it's uh, its highest debt to GDP ratio position since something like the nineteen sixties. It's something ridiculous. Um, and we're about to see an impact on tax. And the funny thing is, even with the raising of the tax, this $2.2 trillion bet, uh, debt that the UK has is never going to be paid yeah. off. It's never going to happen, but they will inflate it away. And so you get people in a position, and I think what's going to happen with this kind of, with, with this transition to Bitcoin, we, we're creating, we're minting new Bitcoin millionaires. We're minting new Bitcoin whales all the time. And... I think at the, I can't remember what the price is, but somebody recently told me about a price where a certain price where Bitcoin reaches, there will be half the world's billionaires will be Bitcoiners, and you know these millionaires, multi-millionaires, billionaires who aren't happy with their services provided by their government, aren't happy with the conditions, are happily going to migrate, become digital nomads, go to you know friendly uh, jurisdictions, your Portugal's, your Maltas, your Estonias, your Cayman Islands, and that's going to, again, that's going to be another wealth drain out of these Western yeah. nations. Again, accelerating it. Everything feels like, uh, and it's like the Parker Lewis gradually, then suddenly, everything feels like this acceleration of what is happening here. But what was quite interesting, I'm referring back to your notes. Anyone listening, uh, Mr. Breedlove has produced an outstanding set of notes. Uh, taxing authorities have grown accustomed, and you mentioned this earlier, to treating their taxpayers as a farmer treats his own cows, keeping them in a field to be milked. In the digital age, these cows grow wings. And we're seeing that. Yeah, and I, that's one side of it, right? Like the, the, the taxpayers, which this is, that is the productive base on which all politics rest. It needs a productive economy to siphon wealth off of, to, <laughs> to be a non-productive politician, let's say. And there's no such thing as a productive politician, by the way. I make this point in the piece that mm-hmm. the legislator's pen cannot create wealth. It can only redistribute wealth. So I think that's the big awakening here as well, is that we're moving from a world where we thought somehow that by virtue of a popularity contest, we could put a guy in office that could make things better. And it's just silly. It's just a silly, nonsensical notion. Um, it's consumed a lot of our, our cognitive space. Like if you go and talk to just, at least in America, you talk to your normal American, they've got some big opinion about politics and how this guy is better than that guy or this girl is better than this girl. It's like, it's all the same. It's all the same. None of it will ever create the outcome you want. The only outcome is they will plunder the Commonwealth to their own benefit. They will serve their central bank masters. That's the only guarantee in this whole game. Um, and then the other side of this, so that's the taxpayers, right? The other side of that is who you alluded to, these, these ultra-rich. Typically in these transitions, governments become increasingly desperate, you know, as... Um, 
the taxpayers are getting increasingly upset and distrustful of the government, they start to demand these exotic things like MMT, wealth tax, exit tax. You know, the taxes become disproportionately skewed on the wealthy. There's a lot of anger towards the wealthy. I'm debating with people on Twitter sometimes telling me how evil Jeff Bezos is, like how he is the incarnation of evil. Now, having no conception of entrepreneurship or how much productivity, say, Bezos' business has added to the world, he has decreased the cost of living for people worldwide. Now, not to say he's a pure entrepreneur, like he's benefited a lot from the fiat currency spigot as well, largely because Amazon was, was able to outrun state laws and state taxes in the early days. So again, they were able to decrease the cost of distribution relative to a Walmart or whoever else. Um, so had he, he may have not been as successful in a truly capitalistic world. Who knows? But to say he's evil is, is silly. You're shooting yourself in the foot. If you don't want rich problem solvers. Well, it's, it's that statement. It's that statement we saw regularly during, uh, Whenever Bernie Sanders is campaigning, is that billionaires should right. not exist, which, <laughs> which is obviously a deeply flawed statement on so many de- levels. But the concept that they shouldn't exist puts a kiss yes. on right. production, which is just as bad as minimum wage. Right, it creates its opposite effect. You put a cap on wealth, then you're going to suppress problem solving in the world. You're going to increase the set of problems in the world. Um, and by the way, which is so silly for a guy like that to say that, is we, billionaires shouldn't exist. We're going to go print $10 trillion to give everyone helicopter money. It's like you're going to make everyone a billionaire, right? We're going to be like Zimbabwe eventually. And uh, Was it Zimbabwe? Everyone was a billionaire, a trillionaire. Yeah. Yeah, it was Zimbabwe. So the point there is that well, and, I mean, when they started. It's Venezuela as well. And I think Venezuela have just minted their million Bolivar notes right, this week. I, I think that. I saw. I could be wrong. So as we... Government, uh, let's say ineptitude, kind of reaches its climax, which I think we're near today. Uh, people that are dispossessed because the government, the central bank specifically, has been printing money, which confiscates wealth from those that depend on the store of value function of dollars or euro or whatever it is the most. So it's dispossessing people in the socioeconomic hierarchy. It's enriching those that are already rich. This is the classic rich get richer, the poor get poorer. When that hits a tipping point and that the middle class has been eviscerated enough, people rise up, right? There's populism, there's revolt, there's anger. And that becomes expressed through the voting mechanism, um, through public demonstration, through riots and protests. And eventually politicians will capitulate and they will start to try and have more heavily tax the rich. And I think when that happens, actually, overlaid with Bitcoin being the only monetary medium available in the world that is totally immune to wealth redistribution, which is to say confiscation. I think that's going to be a major tipping point and that billionaires start to protect themselves from government overreach in Bitcoin. And that is only going to accelerate the need for government to print even more money to to deliver helicopter money and, and what have you. And I just don't see that being reversible because I've, you know, the other funny thing about Bitcoin is nobody becomes less bullish. Do you know anyone that's sort of interacted with Bitcoin and bought a little bit and then backed up? I mean, I, 
you could maybe argue a few of these crypto jokers that I are mean, trying to peddle the shit coin, but anyone that's taking a serious look at it, no one becomes less bullish. No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Next up, I talked to Robert Breedlove more about Bitcoin and the sovereign individual. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Today, we're kicking off with Sportsbet.io. My friends over in Estonia, my good friends over in Estonia, my friends who've turned around to me and said, people are going to buy you a Lamborghini. True story. Amazing. Now, they are the best place for online gaming, and they accept Bitcoin. And they are also the front of shirt sponsor for Southampton and the betting partner for Arsenal. So if you're watching Premier League football and you're seeing Bitcoin logos everywhere, it is sportsbet.io. You have to thank who are pushing the message of Bitcoin globally. Now with sportsbet.io, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They've got football, tennis, American sports, motorsports. They even cover esports. And if you are interested in becoming a customer, they always have a range of promotions available. Just head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions to find out more. And that is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet, who I have been using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin for nearly six weeks now. As you know, I had my bank accounts closed down by the banks. They gave me 65 days notice And that's put an added pressure on me to run parts of my business on Bitcoin. Not the whole thing. I do have to run parts in dollar. I do have to run parts in pounds. I have people to pay. I've got bills to pay. But I am increasingly using Bitcoin. I'm paying some people in Bitcoin. Some people want to get paid in Bitcoin. Some staff want to get part of their salary in Bitcoin. And in doing so, because Bitcoin accounting can be a bit of a nightmare, I needed a good wallet, a really usable wallet for keeping an audit of this. And when Exodus reached out to me, I took a look at their wallet and I was like, you know what? You've killed it. You've crushed the UX. This is what I need. So I started using it. Now, if you want to check out Exodus Wallet, please head over to exodus.com or search the Google or Apple app stores for Exodus, which is E-X-O-D-U-S. And lastly today, but never least, because we're going to talk about security, is Casa, who I have been using to protect my Bitcoin from me being an idiot, hackers, mistakes, device failure, and so much more for coming up to a year. The anniversary is going to be very soon, and I'm also going to be upgrading to their diamond package because Casa is brilliant. Casa have absolutely nailed security. Now, I know some of you are making gains out there. We're heading towards a potential another all-time high. You've got to love a bull market, right? So if you're making good gains and you have not got your security together, please do go and check Casa out. And they do have a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet. With Casa Platinum, you get their three or five multi-sig. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. And you can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. I can think of key interviews I've done in the last year, which have made me more bullish, which have led me to buy more Bitcoin. Uh, specifically one with our mutual friend, Brandon Quitten, where we discussed... That's a great episode. The, the episode I made with Nick Bartia discussing layered money. Uh, I did an episode with Ben Prentice and, and Heavily Armed Clown discussing what the fuck happened in... Oh, and Guy Swan, actually. No, I discussed um, my episode with Stephanie Kelton. And uh, you get to that point with it. I mean, I think I think if you have the benefit of a full cycle, so you've ridden a bear market and you're mm-hmm. now in the green, it becomes a lot easier to remain bullish yeah. because you should be able to survive another bear market. Yes, 
your value in pounds, dollars might drop. But you once you can ride out any bear market, you've essentially got to fuck you money stage. And then you you obviously you be, you, you don't become less bullish. Um, and what happens is I think also over time what's happened this cycle, a lot of your other fears start to to drop away. I think we now have I've talked about it a few times. I think we have this regulatory mm. moat around us now. We're not fully protected, but we have a certain amount of protection with the amount of money that's in Bitcoin, the fact that Tesla yeah. are in Bitcoin, that Square's in Bitcoin, that Mike's said, we have these people there. If the regulators try and push too far, they try and put too onerous regulations in place, we have this yeah. pushback. I think certain states could still ban Bitcoin. I still think Brazil, India, Russia, those types of more authoritarian states could still ban it. I think in Europe and the US and the Western nations, I think it's a little bit more difficult. But you're right. Um, I think what happens is you become more bullish and I think you become more fearful of holding sovereign currencies, yeah, which I have. Absolutely. So considering this ultimate Bitcoin offshore bank and considering people don't become less bullish, considering this kind of the incentive model for Bitcoin, there's two things I think about with regard to the state wrapped around the idea of this kind of transition period. Um, I'm often, you know, when I'm discussing with libertarians, I'm often thinking with regard to the state, there are politicians or there are people who are naturally evil or who are naturally power hungry. But I don't believe every politician is. Whether or not we believe they're all have add, add no value or take value away, I still believe some politicians themselves are institutionalized to the idea that we need the state and politics is a natural part of life, and they go in with good intention. I do believe there are politicians with good intention. So I'm often thinking, well, why, why is the outcome always the same? Why is the outcome always negative? And I think it's just the, the way the game theory of politic, politics plays out, um, and the way that politicians tend to be, you know, protect the state and protect their own jobs and protect their own interests. Yes. As we all know, during a pandemic, no politicians stopped getting paid or were furloughed or lost twenty percent of their revenue of their salary. Um, so I do start to think about you know, we do have this regulatory moat around Bitcoin at the moment. It probably isn't seen as too much of an existential threat to the state, but based on the theory of uh, the sovereignism and the sovereign individual, that it is ultimately an existential threat. So I'm interested in like the transition period. How will the state react? What kind of reaction will we see? And you know, um, as you put in your notes, governments have grown used to enjoying a monopoly of a currency that they could depreciate well. But inflation as a revenue option will be largely foreclosed by the emergence of Bitcoin. And and as you've said here, like individuals are now free to opt into the most user friendly monetary policy ever: zero terminal inflation rate. Like I am interested in this transitional period, what's the state reaction going to be? Are we going to see some kind of war? Are we going to see an attack on Bitcoin? It, you know, uh, Neil Woodford talked about this. He said the real battles to come with Bitcoin. You know, the civil war, you know, we've had the Bitcoin civil war. The real battle is going to become with the state when they realize the existential threat that it is to who they are. How much have you thought about this? Yeah, it's the... Most, it's the greatest known unknown. You know, we alluded to earlier, Black Swan's unknowable unknown. This is, we know this is a threat to Bitcoin. Right? Actually, Bitcoin 
is designed around this entire threat. It's designed to be survivable through a nation state attack, through, through concerted nation state hostility even. Uh, Bitcoin has made every engineering trade-off possible to optimize for survivability for this very reason. It is the, the ultimate enemy of the state, if you will, properly understood. Now, when you start to actually talk to politicians and, and central bankers about this, I don't know that they fully see and grasp its implications at this point. Um, I would say it's becoming, again, with number go up, it's increasingly clear that this thing is a, it's a big deal. Um, but you would expect at some point there to be this self-preservation Darwinian-like response from the institutions that face existential threat. From Bitcoin. Um, and I don't know my, my thinking on it. My thinking on it now is actually that. So you, you alluded to earlier that there's, we tend to think there are certain bad, good people, bad people, right? Good, bad apples, good apples. I actually think that people and their characters are emergent properties of the incentive structures they are operating within. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, which a lot of people don't seem to get when I say it, but I think it's very deep and meaningful, is that human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. So there have been a number of experiments run where you, if you put a person in a position of authority or they have a certain asymmetric advantage over another, they tend to kind of fill that role, you know. It's a Stanford prison experiment. That's right. That's the exact one. But if you put them into a situation where the rules are, you know, fair, fixed, equitable, then people are going to adapt to the, again, the most advantageous strategy, which in that situation would be long-term cooperation um, or fair competition, you would say, based on those rules. So I think the, where Bitcoin takes us is that we, today we have politics as a scaled out affair, right? We in the U.S. are concerned about what political happenings are occurring in Washington, D.C., right? Uh, even if you're in California on the west side of the country, that's only because there's a monopoly on money. If there's no monopoly on money, you're going to really quickly disregard what's happening in the political sphere at the other end of the world. Um, this, so another way to say this is that when you move out of fiat currency and into Bitcoin, extortion is no longer scalable. So you're not able mm -hmm. to, to suffer under this, this invisible form of extortion we call inflation or unilateral taxation. Um, and, and politics itself and government reverts back to a more localized affair. We can think here, too, that the, the other flaw in thinking that I think is really important to flesh out. And this is really common with a lot of macro guys and girls, right? Uh, oh, China owns Bitcoin. The United States will never let it happen. Like they talk in these economic aggregates as if there's a single mm -hmm. indivisible unit in the world called China or the United States. And it's just not reality. It's not real at all. What is real is that we have this more or less tightly uh, grouped constellation of mutual interest, sociocultural affiliation, geopolitical affiliation, whatever it may be, 
that comprises the nation state. So it's not like China is this, I mean, um, China would say has the CCP, which tends to be a little more singular directive in action. So that it behaves more like an indivisible aggregate, but something like the United States is much more decentralized, we'd say, even though there's a strong federal government. It doesn't mean that the, the U.S. moves as like one single entity in all areas uh, of decision making. And so what I see happening here is that every one of these, uh, you know, judges, policemen, arbitrators, every, everyone that works in the government, they have a dual hat. They have another hat they wear as a citizen, basically. So they're engaging with Bitcoin, maybe through two different lenses. One is, hey, I need to go do my job and like make my boss happy. He needs to make his boss happy and, and respect the, the government bureaucracy. Uh, and, and we could put central banks under this umbrella, anything, any government bureaucracy. But they're also operating with this hat of, hey, I'm a citizen. I need to protect my wealth. I need to provide for my family, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what I think will happen here is that as you know, the magic of Bitcoin number go up technology, right? The harder government squeeze, the more they try to, to confiscate, inflate, increase taxes, et cetera, the more people are going to slip between their fingers into this ultimate offshore bank of Bitcoin, which increases its market cap. And as we all know, incentives, again, human nature like water takes the shape of its container. Incentives shape reality for you. If you're a Bitcoin holder and all of a sudden it's, you know, 10x in price, you're going to maybe think a little differently about how you treat it from a, a regulatory standpoint as an individual, right? And maybe that shapes how your boss looks at it. Or maybe he's also bought a little bit to protect himself from inflation. So the analogy I make is that I think Bitcoin acts as this digital asset that's kind of dissolving the the incentives that 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 bound nation states and institutions together, I think it kind of dissolves them from within. Um, I, I go into this in, in the piece, actually, there's, there's a psychological experiment called the selective attention experiment. And it, a psychologist assigns a task to uh, the, the, the uh, people in the experiment, and they're watching a video. It's a short video, 20 seconds long, people with black shirts and white shirts, and they say, all right, you watch the people in the black shirts count how many times they pass the basketball back and forth. They're all in a basketball court running around passing the ball. And so you do that, you engage with the task, you count the number of passes, the basketball. And then at the, at the end of this 20 second video, the experimenter asks you, so how many times do they pass the basketball? And was, you know, whatever, seven, eight, ten, whatever the number is. Then the experimenter asks, okay, thank you. Did you see the six-foot man in a gorilla costume walk into the middle of the frame of the video, flail his arms about for five seconds, and then walk off screen? And like 75% yeah. of the people don't see it. I didn't see it. Yeah. I know the video. I didn't see it. If you go, And it's crazy. It's on YouTube. You can go do it yourself. Yeah. Like, granted, once you know it, you sort of see it. Yeah, you know. But if someone gets you with this without describing it to you in full... Like it, it's been repeated many times. 75% of people don't see it. So the moral of the story there is that your, your incentives or your, the, the aim of your goal directed action determines not only how you see the world, 
but it determines what you see in the world. You literally don't see that guy in the gorilla suit if you're not if there's no incentive for you to look for him. Basically, you're following the passes. And I think that Bitcoin will shape not only how regulators in their in their role as citizens see the world, but will also shape what they see in the world. We'll start to look at this uh, alternative financial system differently. And then to your point earlier, we already have this regulatory moat where every time a Square, a Tesla, a MicroStrategy, any of these uh, major public equities take a position, they bring with them an army of lobbyists, influence, you know, uh, political affiliation, etc. So it becomes really hard to resist at some point. And I think instead of there being this I'm sure there's going to be a counterstroke from the state. I'm sure there's going to be some fight, but I think it's going to be less of this epic battle between Bitcoin and the state. It's going to be more of like the state dissolving into Bitcoin over time. There will be people on the side of the state. We've already seen the typical kind of arguments that, and it feels like people who think they've missed out. I certainly think there's some people who feel like they've missed out and therefore, they want to be anti-Bitcoin mm-hmm. and they'll pick up whichever, the, the mainstream press do a lot, pick ever whatever kind of FUD there is, like tether, the tether FUD until the tether FUD passed away and that's gone now. Now it's energy FUD, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I certainly think there's, there's that. I also certainly think there's people who just do not agree that um, the idea of you know, a full anarchist world is better than one with states and countries. And, and some people believe that despite all the flaws, we are better off with the state. We're better off with that pull and pull of democracy, even with its flaws. Because without that, we don't have, like the book does comment on this, we don't have a, a, a working example of a operational country which is essentially anarchist in nature or, or was without a state. I myself still can't get myself to a position of that, but I do like the idea of a smaller state. I do like the idea of uh, Bitcoin dissolving in, uh, sorry, the state dissolving into Bitcoin, but providing a service. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, and they are, you know, forced within that provision of that service to keep to a budget because they don't have the ability to print money as they do now. Um, so that transitional period is the thing I'm thinking about. Where do we end up? Where do we become? And, 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 it reminds me of a conversation I had with Eric Voorhees a long time ago. He said, you know, despite him being a, um, a libertarian, he's like, I'm not calling for the end of the state now. What I'm calling for them is to get smaller, just 5% yes. smaller next year and see what happens. Yeah. And for me, what this becomes is almost like an A-B test of the state of what can they provide or what should they provide. Yeah. You know, if they are restricted to a budget, what, do they, what services do they drop first? And it then becomes... Perhaps that we do operate with a state, but a much smaller state, you know, in a different way that's providing services which, you know, are um, subject to the free market. Yeah. No, it's a great point. Um, I would argue that there is no historical example of this, you know, crypto anarchist ideal of social organization. Because of what we're talking about, by the way, right? Money has always been confiscatable. Coercion and violence has always been useful because we didn't have digital technology. We didn't have encryption, frankly, to put these things 
or whether it's capital, commercial relationships, ideas, we can put them behind an impenetrable digital wall. Now, we didn't have that defender's advantage in any of the analog ages, right? Agricultural or industrial. So that's why I'm in this piece, I'm like, I've called Bitcoin before this, it enables this purified form of capitalism. But I think you just have to almost give it an entirely new name because nothing like this was possible before Bitcoin and encryption tech, essentially. That's the big change here. And at a really fundamental level, the book goes into this. I'll try to do it justice, but this is something rooted in mathematics that mm-hmm. encryption itself, it's very easy to multiply prime numbers, but it's very easy to divide them and determine if they're prime. So it makes the point that this simple asymmetry in the math, the structure of mathematics itself actually creates this defender's advantage that, that reshapes society. Um, I don't know that I did that one justice perfectly, but I would say go check that out in the book. It's, it's, it, it, talk about first principles, right? It's like we've discovered something in mathematics, effectively, that causes us to reorganize ourselves. So it's super bottom-up. Um, but to the point on democracy, that's, another, that's what the free market is, by the way. It is a pure democracy. It's economic democracy. It's we're all voting yeah. with our, our buying and trading and selling decisions. And since Bitcoin enables that um, in a more pure sense, we're going to have this miniaturization of the state, which is not, it's going back to what it was originally as a localized protection service. So whatever physical capital we have locally that needs to be defended and protected, the state would provide that. Um, But on something like Bitcoin, those property rights are being defended by by the mining network, right? It's in the, the, the defense is inbuilt into the money almost. So yeah, that's just a, a, another way to look at it is that we've just reduced the need of citizens for the protection service itself because the assets being protected uh, are now, it's the securities integrated into the asset with Bitcoin. And then the state also, or the, the, state, the book also goes into and this is a, a prediction we've yet to see play out, that we would see the, the broader digitization of property rights as well. Um, and I heard a really interesting podcast. I forget the gentleman that was on there, but he was discussing RGB, which is a, you know, a third layer protocol on top of Bitcoin, how it actually can enable a lot of these contractual relationships uh, independent of the court system. So who knows? You know, Bitcoin may underpin even more than we understand today it could be even more than money it could be the base layer for, for digitizing uh, tangible property rights as well. But the big thing here is I think the other way to get another way to think about this, I know I'm always doing that, but that's how I think um, monetization itself shifts our incentives. So whatever we're monetizing, we produce more of. So when we monetize gold, right? Gold, say gold has a one trillion dollar market cap for its industrial use, roughly, whatever, electronics, teeth, etc. Well, gold's market cap is closer to 10 trillion. Why did we produce so much more gold? Because we monetized it, right? There was a demand. Part of its demand configuration was industrial, and part of it was for exchange, monetary use case. So we increased production of gold because we monetized it. Fiat currency is debt, 
That's what it actually is. It incentivizes you to take on more debt because inflation erodes real debt burdens over time. So we monetize debt in the creation of fiat currency. Where are we at now? We have 350% global debt to GDP and rising. Mm-hmm. Um, a- another way to think about that is fiat currency, we always say it's backed by nothing, but it's backed by the anticipated future cash flows of the taxing authority. So fiat currency is backed by coercion and violence. So we have monetized coercion and violence. That is why <laughs> it is, we've increased production of coercion and violence at the state level, right? And again, not to say that it's, you're shooting people to pay their taxes. It's in the shadow of, of as, we just, as we defined violence at the beginning of the episode, in the shadow of this uh, unilateral um, imposition or decree or threat of violence or threat of coercion. That's what fiat currency is premised on. And moving into the Bitcoin world, we have a technology, monetary technology, that has monetized energy. So now, the, in theory at least, should that, that relationship hold, we would increase the production of energy tremendously. And we'd decrease its cost of production. And if you look at something like the, the Kardashev scale, have you heard of this? Where you're like type 1 civilization, type 2, type 3. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, I have, yeah. So type one, I may have the types wrong here, but you've harnessed all the energy on your own planet. Type two, you've harnessed the energy of your solar system. Type three, so on and so forth. And that is the arc of civilization. We, we again, human, human beings are the animals that channel energy across space and time towards the achievement of aims. The more energy we can harness, the more civilized we become. So I think Bitcoin is the gateway to that higher order civilization. And that's what all of, like, what we're trying to get our head around is that. It's this tectonic shift away from statism towards sovereignism. It's funny because I've got a note here. You know, I was going through the notes uh, and I'm working on an idea for a show. Moment with Ben Prentice, who's now a producer on uh, what Bitcoin did. And um, we're working on this idea of this show called The Brilliance of Satoshi. Mm. Like everything he got right. And it's, it's really interesting to watch these other shit coins you know, change their monetary policy or pivot or blah, 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 because they're always trying to reconfigure themselves. Um, very little of that has had to happen with Bitcoin. It's pretty much out of the box. Its monetary policy has never changed. It seems brilliant in design. But not only that, you know, we're having this quite deep conversation with regards to the future shape of society, you know, this transitional phase. And there's so much deep intellectual discussion uh, by very smart people regarding Bitcoin. And I just put a note here. It's like, I mean, we don't know if Satoshi is alive or not or following this, but I wonder if he really fully comprehended, like if he thought about it, like this deeply thought that, I wonder if he just thought, look, I'm going to create this form of money out out of reach of government, out of control, you know, with a fixed supply, you know, trying to make the fairest hardest, best money there is, or he actually realized that Bitcoin could be an essential component of civilizational change. You know, we won't know, but I just wonder that. Yeah, I I have a hard time imagining one guy could, you know, have foreseen all of this, like this... Bitcoin is such a powerful gravity well in terms of 
know, finance, capital, human organization, philosophy. It just, it is mm-hmm. an incredible rabbit hole, right? The rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. Clearly, Satoshi was brilliant. He, she, or they. But I have a really hard time imagining they could have envisaged all of these consequences, right? And how fast it all happened. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, But it's the hardest question now when people are like, what is Bitcoin? Because it becomes a harder question to answer. Yeah. Because it's like, well, I want to tell you this, but like this little dot, but really it's like all of this. You know, I talk to my son, you know, we have really long conversations about this and I do my best to try and explain it as best I can and in a way that he can understand and comprehend. But it is, it's more than just saying, oh, like, you know, it's hard money, it's digital gold. Like, yeah. you know, based on the theories of, for example, the sovereign individual or based on the potential civilizational change we're going through if we are in the fourth turning, as I discussed with Brandon Quittam, therefore yeah. the importance of Bitcoin. Based on all these things, like it's such a deep rabbit hole yeah. um, that, you know, I just, I just, I, like I say, I wonder if he fully comprehends, comprehended it. Perhaps he did. Perhaps he, you know, perhaps he read The Sovereign Individual. Perhaps that was his inspiration. I mean, we'll never know, but it's certainly on my mind. Yeah, I think he... I mean, he probably did read the sovereign individual. Honestly, he was mm. he was very much dialed in to the cypherpunk ethos. You know, he was a cypherpunk. Um, but I, you know, it's funny people talk about the monetary policy of Bitcoin, and it's actually it obliterates the notion of monetary policy. So we could say that okay, it was Satoshi's policy. Maybe you could say that, that he just picked a number. But what he was really doing was choosing the fairest rule for money, which is that no one can confiscate it by inflation. Right? It's perfectly predictable, perfect information. Uh, that's really just using inflation to bootstrap itself, to bootstrap the network into existence. But there's no unknown inflation. So it actually is... It's almost like a form of natural law, right? He's, he's created this law that exists mm. independently of mankind. So the same way we have to figure out how to deal how to deal with gravity and how to deal with thermodynamics, we now have to feel, figure out how to deal with 21 million Bitcoin and zero percent terminal inflation. And that's why Bitcoin is fuck you money, right? It's fuck you to every policy, every police state, and every politician in the world. And it's like that's the power of it. That is the, the core power, but that's why it's the tip of the spear to this uh, sovereignism thesis. And in terms of what it is, I agree with you. We have no idea. This thing could be the foundation to, um, you know, we talked about property rights earlier. There's Lightning Network. There's, there's so many use cases that are possible on top of it. We don't know. We simply don't know. Um, what I do, one description I do like a lot, though, is that we found a way to mix electricity plus greed and turn it into indisputable truth right we just have we just have electricity to mine we have darwinian self-interest self-preservation stir it in a pot and now we have global indisputable truth for all of us to build our own economic strategies in trying to serve one another 
and serve ourselves in the process. Dude, listen, I think for a part one, that's a really good point to end it. Um, I think that's a great introduction. There are some other bits we're going to have to cover in a follow-up parts. We've got to look at the historical perspective and see how this plays out. But man, honestly, I could sit and talk to you for hours, especially through this shit. I learned so much. Um, sometimes I'm like, are we like being weirdos here? Are we being hyperbolic? <laughs> One of the things I've realized is that I've kind of, I've kind of held off with the more hyperbolic claims of Bitcoiners ever since I've been in, and I've always felt my, found myself apologizing because they're, they're often right. I've read a number of things, come back and read a number of things on uh, Pierre Rochard and Bistine's website, uh, Nakamoto Institute. They predict, they themselves have predicted a lot of what's happened. So now yeah. I'm, just, I'm just in for the ride. Like, I'm, I'm in now. Let's see how this plays out. But that's a great start, dude. Listen, just tell people where to follow your work and we will follow this up with uh, subsequent parts. Yeah, I'm excited to do that. I think this is uh, a really important text to share. And well, I think we'll once we get done with this, let's open source all the notes. Uh, we can point people to the book online as well. Um, this is important because this transition, very uncertain. Uh, the most, the best thing you can do is arm yourself with knowledge, I think. So that's why I feel very strongly about what we're doing here. And, and, and hopefully the writing too helps. Uh, again, my name is Robert Breedlove. I'm on Twitter at Breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Um, just started the What Is Money show. So there's links there. I'm doing these long form intellectual discourse sessions with the most prolific thinkers that will sit down with me. Um, working with Jeff Booth now and yeah, it's similar to what we're doing here. You know, we're going deep on topics and uh, hopefully externalizing the minds of some of these great thinkers for other people to see. And, and um, the quote I heard recently was, I forget who said it, but civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And it's like, love it. So we're just trying to, you know, amplify the education side. Well, listen, man, um, you know what I think of you. Uh, I think you're one of, if not the most important speakers about Bitcoin right now. I think the work you're doing is fantastic. Um, what I love about it is that you're drawing in other voices outside of Bitcoin, other people who are just kind of being tempted by it and they want to talk to you. And I think the work you're doing is important. And I hope some of the most important shows out there start getting you on. I know you've got some stuff coming up. Uh, we've talked about other shows. Hopefully you'll be on. But look, just keep doing what you're doing. It's really, really important work. I'm learning a lot from you and I appreciate everything you do, man. Hey, thank you, brother. I really appreciate you too. And thanks for having me. Now, I know you all enjoyed that one. As expected, Breedlove smashed this. I think this entire series on the sovereign individual is going to be super interesting. We will be making probably four or five parts over the next coming months, but please be patient because these shows take a lot of planning on both sides. I'm not just wanting to have... I don't just want to find out what's in the book with him. I want to hear his concepts, like why he thinks this is relevant, how he thinks Bitcoin plays into this, and I want to push back on him. I really want to squeeze him on some of these topics. Now, it does make you wonder, well, it made me wonder whether Satoshi had read the book before Bitcoin and how much of an influence it maybe had on its eventual design. Uh, to me, it's just kind of mind-blowing how much of this book has come to fruition. Anyway, look, I hope you enjoyed this. I think I will be dropping part two 
of this series, hopefully within the next couple of weeks, three or four weeks maybe. So make sure you don't miss out on that. And in the meantime, if you enjoyed this and you haven't yet listened to my interview with Brandon Quittam on the fourth turning, please go back and check that out. It's similar to this in a lot of ways, and it was probably one of my favorite episodes of the last year. That is episode number 282. Do not miss that. Now, if you do want to get in touch, you can reach out to me at hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can jump on my Telegram group, join in the What Bitcoin Did group over there, and I will reply to you if you've got any messages. And also, thanks to anyone who supports the show. Whatever you do, and there's a lot of you, sharing the show, telling your friends, writing to me. But what I want is reviews. If you like the show and you want to support it, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Outside of that, I do have this new series about Britney Spears' conservatorship, which has dropped on Defiance. I know people are going to be thinking that's a weird thing to be approaching for Defiance, but the conservatorship issue is very weird. Please do go and check that out. It was produced by Tom Pattinson, and that's at defiance.news. And head over to neveredit.com to sign up to my daily email, which is Bitcoin, tech, and macroeconomics. Okay, have a great weekend. Love you all, and I will see you all soon.